The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We're in Philippians chapter 2. We're about to end the section of text that we've been in for a number of weeks, which, as I continue to remind you, really goes uh, way far back in the context, at least, chapter 1 and verse 27. Of course, we are down now in chapter 2, Along about verse 14 slash 15-ish, I know we started to discuss 15 on last week. Uh, the immediate context right above this, you continue to remember, kind of kicked itself off in a major way in verse 5 where the Apostle Paul wrote by inspiration, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. And I said several different times, for my memory's sake at least, that he was talking about our need for unity in spite of us being humanity, and that's based on us trying to act like deity. Now, I'll change that quote up a little bit because I think that's a, maybe a better way of understanding that. If we act like Christ, we won't have any problem being humble. We won't have any problem being uh, unified in not only with God, obviously, but even with one another. And I think every problem that you see arise between people, you can basically draw that problem out and say, okay, here's what's wrong. Somebody in this situation, if not both parties, are not acting like Jesus would. And if we would just do that, I think that would be enough right there, not to earn our salvation, obviously, but for us to have peace among people, and then ultimately through obedience based upon the sacrifice that he made, then salvation could be a result. And of course, faithfulness would be a part of that, and a part of being faithful is to live in a life uh, in such a way that would mirror or mimic what Christ would do. And so beginning in verse 5, that's kind of sort of what you got down to. Now, as you carry that context on out, and we did in a number of different weeks, we talked about how that Christ was made, quote, I'm looking at verse number 8 for this, he was found in the fashion of a man. That is the schematic is where we get our English word, schema. The schematic, the look of man, however, he had within him the uh, morphe is the word there that's found up above of this, back up in verse number 6, or the form of, of God's and that just implies that everything inside of him and about him was that of God even though he looked to be a man and I'm not saying he just looked like it like he was you know not really a man he was but everything visually and physically was that of a man but on the inside of him yes there was God as I would like to refer to him as God in the body and of course he drew that conclusion all the way down to talk about our obedience verse 12 to talk about the works that we will do and how that we do those works for His, that's God's good pleasure. And then he says in verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. And of course that verse to me, in the beginning of it, kind of sounded or felt a little bit odd. But I think contextually, obviously it goes right back up to talk about not the fact about we murmur and dispute among ourselves, which we do, there's no argument there, but the fact that we obey God himself without murmuring or disputing. And so we see Christ as the Lord that he is, and I think that was really uh, mentioned back up in verses 9 and verse 10, talking about the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, based on the fact that he is exalted above all, therefore he is Lord, Every tongue, verse 11, confesses that he is Lord. And when we live as if he really is Lord to us, uh, ultimately, you know, we in ourselves, we're not going to want to or need to murmur or dispute that fact. And of course, many of us do, not necessarily verbally, 
But I know I can, I can only speak for myself in my life. If I'm not living Christ-like, I may as well just shake my fist at God and say, look, I don't like the way that you've planned for me to live. I don't accept the way that you have plan, uh, prescribed for me to go about my life. And so I want to do different. That would be murmuring and disputing. I think that context, however, ties directly on in to the next context or the next few verses. Verse 15, we started this on last week, that you may be blameless. That is, why is it that we go without murmuring and disputing? Why is it that we recognize Christ as Lord? Why is it that we humble ourselves as he did? Why is it that we have the mind that he had? That, you could put in that place in order that, he says uh, we may be blameless, that's one thing, harmless, that's yet another, sons of God, without rebuke, that's the third one there, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights to the world. And we started talking a little bit last week about those terms, blameless, harmless, and without rebuke. And they're all related. Uh, there are different words here in the English. You, if you were able to look this up in the Greek language, which digital tools make that uh, more possible for us, you look that up and try to draw these words across from the original Greek to the English, you see all three of these words are different in the Greek as well. So there's a reason, but they're very closely related, particularly the first two things that we're asked or commanded to do. That is to be blameless and then essentially to be harmless. And so the first word blameless there carries with the idea of being without uh, defect. And I, I don't know how I illustrated that particularly, but I know that it has something to do with the fact that if and when, and we, I shouldn't say if, but when we are criticized, when we are persecuted, when we are accused, those accusations, those criticisms won't stick. And uh, you could say something, and we often are, you know, get found on the bad side of this. Uh, people are going to have stuff, something to say about us as Christians. Um, you think back, and there are several passages where Jesus gives the same idea, but this most common one always comes to mind. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Ye shall be hated for my name's sake. Why? Why is that? Because they hated me. And so the world, evil, is going to hate Christ. And if we're going to be like-minded to what Christ was, verse 5 through 7, this context, we're going to be hated as well. And so it may not be that we always recognize that. We may not even always feel that. But that's going to be looming around us. As, as other contexts say, uh, as well, darkness hates light. And that's just what it boils down to. Darkness is not going to uh, mix with light. But the great news is, and we're about to see this same form of the words, once light is present, darkness is dispelled. And so... That's what we continue to do, or must continue to do, is to dispel that darkness. And one of the ways to make that possible is by doing our best to be blameless. And that is to be without defect. The second word, they're harmless, um, carries with the idea, and I, don't, I didn't really look right before, and if I don't look right before, I don't remember, but other translations may use a different term right here. The King James translation I think does a good job with it, but maybe not the most understandable for us. When we think about something being harmless, you might think about, you know, a, a little small animal or a small child or, you know, something that's cute and cuddly looking. You say, oh, that's, that's harmless. Other people, and I saw someone do this this past week, uh, they were dealing with a snake. And uh, 
bad situation, funny situation on both sides. And someone said, oh, that thing's harmless. Well, that's, that's in your mind. It may not be in the person's mind who's encountered such. The idea of harmless right here and what really backs this word up is the idea of not a cute and cuddly or something animal or a harmless person. It's the idea of something that is unmixed. You say, well, why choose the word harmless? Because they lived in a day and time when they didn't have, and of course this New Testament time, and before that was even, I would say, Mumford term, worser. Um, they didn't have access to the cleanest, most hygienic uh, things in life. And you could use, just as a representation, drinking water. It wasn't necessarily accessible to them as much. And so if someone dipped out of a well or what have you, uh, they were, in everyday life, in a sense, taking a chance or at least laying their cells out there for the potential to be harmed. And it had to do with whether or not, not that water was pure, the water itself was pure, but if something got in that, it would lose its purity. And I've heard it illustrated before, you know, I know Michael Shepard did this years ago, and he used to use a lot of visual aids, and I can remember him laying out visual aids on the Lord's Supper table at one point, and he pulled out all the ingredients that go in a cake mix. You know, he brings out all the flowers and the sugars and, and the things that go in it. And then he brings out a little bottle that he had labeled as poison. And basically asked, you know, how many drops of poison would it take to harm, you know. Well, the thing is, any amount is going to do some level of harm. It's, it's going to taint. And it's not going to make that cake pure as it should be. Just an illustration. But here he says, be harmless. That is, don't be mixed. Mixed up with the world. Or don't be mixed in, in what we do, in the way that we practice things. And I've got a couple references you could put down for that. Look back into Matthew 10 and verse 16, Romans 16 and verse 19 as well. Then the next phrase here, that they be harmless sons of God, that is, we're harmless in the fact that we are sons of God, and that's a good reason and a good evidence why we should be. And he says, without rebuke. Now again, very close to the idea of what was said in the beginning, to be blameless. Something that's without defect or blameless, without rebuke, carries with the idea of being faultless, not sinlessly perfect, but faultless or that which is unspotted. And if you look at the Old Testament commands for sacrifices and such, particularly with lambs, what was one of God's requirements for every one of those animals? What did he want? He wanted the animal without defect, without spot. In this case, you could say without rebuke, just to illustrate the words here. He wanted an animal that was to his standards and to whatever God's level of perfection that was required in that case. He didn't want the lame. He didn't want the broken. He didn't want the sick. He wanted as a sacrifice to him then and, and really still does now. We don't offer the animal side of things, but he's looking for us, according to Romans 12, to be living sacrifices. And so he wanted those things to be unspotted or without rebuke. Now he says this is what uh, is mind-boggling and, and not mind-boggling, but what is confusing about this, where I have to draw myself back and say, whoa, whoa, he, he, he wanted this in what type of situation? Because he says, reading the verse again, verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst, what's another word for midst? Middle. We would, we would actually imply, this means when you're right, smack, Dab in the middle. 
Now, now we, we're not to be smack dab in the middle of the world, obviously, as in we live as the world. Again, that Romans 12 context, be not conformed, put in the world's mode, but be you transformed. How is that, by the way? Great connection to the context back up the page, by the renewing of your mind. That's Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 and through 7. The mind of Christ. But we're not to be separate from the world in that aspect, but the fact that the world should not, previous words, mixed with us, and we should not mix with it. The fact that we should be without defect and, and you know, not able to have criticism stick. We do that in the midst, smack in the middle of, a crooked and perverse nation. Now that, unfortunately for us, and reads like the morning newspaper. It, it, it is what it is. And, and that, I'm not making that reference based on, you know, who carries a political, you know, place and government or anything like that. It's, it's not just this. It's the nation. I mean, I stood here, not here, but I mean in my mind at least, and I probably said it somewhere, maybe I did here, five years ago, and, and would have said, I know for a fact, I would have said, you know what, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, what they claim on, in the media or in the news, the world's not as bad as it seems. And I'm not saying that it's as bad as it seems necessarily, but I promise you this, it's gotten worse. The moral standards of, of this world have come way down in the last few years. I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, some of the sins that are being committed today, some of the actions that are taking place, homosexuality, that sort of thing, uh, I would have said, oh, that's just some way out majority. Uh, it, I wish it still was. I'm afraid it ain't. And, and for that matter, it's not always the people who commit any said sin. It's those who don't deny it or in some senses in turn encourage such. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And I think those sins, if you want to get a reference for what types of sins would be involved, one, you can go to God's Word for that. Uh, second, I think you easily, and I, I don't know a way to do this, but if you want to draw an error from this phrase right here in verse number 15, Philippians chapter 2, back to Romans chapter 1, 18 to 25, that's pretty much a divine commentary on such. And all of those sins involved there in Romans chapter 1 are, are sickening. Those sins listed there, just they just almost, almost well, the gag of maggot to think about. Now, Brother Winkler told us, preacher boys, don't ever, you know, don't say things. We understand that term, though. <laughs> that, you know, that's what it is. And God's stomach is turned by it. As a matter of fact, that context says on three different occasions, God gave them up. I gave them over. God gave them up. Those people described in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 25. And so here in our context, he said, you've got to live a life that is blameless and harmless and without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now, the word crooked right there is exactly what it sounds like. I think the biblical thought process that may go with it is anytime you see words that surround sin, whether it be the word sin itself, whether it be transgression is a good example of such, biblical word transgression, it always carries with it some form of an idea of missing the mark. Missing the mark. 
And I don't know as much about that in, in my older days, but in my younger days, I loved to shoot. Uh, just from my memory, I loved to shoot a bow and arrow. I loved archery. And I, I know that I was pretty good at it. I mean, I could, I've, I've actually, on one time, by a stroke of whatever luck, I put an arrow inside of an arrow, right out my mama's front yard. I mean, split it, drove it straight in. That's a nearly impossible shot. It was easy for me because I didn't, I didn't do it. It just happened. But the reason oftentimes those shots missed, at least the reason, class excuse I like to claim, is something wrong with the arrow. Something about it's crooked. And if you get an arrow that's gotten bent uh, or, or any kind of a crook in it, as slight as it may be, and you can roll those things and see it kind of do this on the tabletop, you can trash that one because it ain't going to hit nothing. Not very well. And that's the picture of the word here because to sin is to miss the mark, to transgress. Again, another biblical type word for sin means to go around or beside, to get away from the middle, to get away from the, the, the center of things. And he says here, we're to do this in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You could have put in, in that blank if you want to just, you know, for mind and memory's sake, in a sinful. Crooked equal to sin biblically. Crooked and then that word perverse. What, is, what does it mean to be a pervert? I don't need anything very descriptive. It's a bad person. But what it means is, is that something is twisted. Right? That's the word pervert or perverse literally means to have a twist. And so you think about the, that word there, the first one there, you get someone who is perverted or someone who has a perverse mind a lot of times or maybe all the time that's recognized because they just don't think like the average person they don't live like the average person and the things that we again romans 1 18 and 25 the things that we would consider moral and, and right and true and and to be a standard they look at all or many of those things and be like mm, that i mean not not for me that's, that's your opinion, that's your judgment, but I want to live this way. And, of course, we live in the midst of a similar situation than that. Now, is this the worst the world has ever seen? I don't believe so. I, I don't even think we've gotten close to, just for example, to the Roman type of world in, under which this book right here was written. But I think we're headed more toward that than we have been in the past for certain. And so, yes, true then... True as it is today, we live in the midst, in the middle of a crooked and a perverse nation. But what does he want to come out of that? What is the conclusion? Again, we're still in verse 15. He said, a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights to the world. Now, where have we heard a phrase in, in any biblical New Testament book about being a light to the world? Matthew 5 is the first thing that we know about. It's Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And so anyone who discusses or mentions or recorded an account of the Sermon on the Mount would say the same or very similar to it, where we are told there that we are to be what? Lights to the world. Now, the thing about that, and you put this back with John chapter 1, Read down through about verse, well, you can read all the way through the chapter for one good measure, but read down at least to about verse 12 or so, John chapter 1. You're going to find out that Jesus was the light of the world. 
Now that is singular in nature. He is the light of the world. He's the ultimate light. But then he, he seemingly, on the surface, stepping back, someone might accuse that, well, he contradicted himself because he claimed to be the light of the world, but he wants us to be lights. Yeah, the light and lights with S's on the end. And in a sense, just for illustration, the way that occurs and exists is just like we have illustrated for us on any clear night when we look up in, in our part of the world and we get to see the moon. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with someone living in a big city, but it ain't for me. Come in a big city, you don't see those stars and, and such. What's the moon doing? Is it a light? No, it's not a light. It's a reflection of light. It, it's seeing the sun that for us has gotten on the other side of things, and it's reflecting that back. That is illustrative of the way that I and we must live as Christians. And so he says, in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights the world. Now again, Jesus in talking about that light, as Matthew recorded during his sermon on the Mount, what did he say about it? Don't hide your light. Don't, don't, don't set yourself up where the world can see. And that is difficult to do right now. Because just like was just mentioned about this in preceding context, when we stand up, as the lights of the world, as God commanded, we become basically the targets of that world. And that is why contextually, you go way back up in the context and really across the page, chapter 1 and verse 30, he says there, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul said, I'm, I'm in conflict. You're going to be in conflict. And that conflict comes because of the light that we reflect. Yes, sir. This instruction would be instruction to us as well as to how we should live. And when you look at people in society, no matter how bad it is, the only way it's going to get any better is by us having this influence in the group. Now, we can, we can be a comedian. We can go out in the everyday life and take on the same uh, type of code that they are carrying on rather than be just Yeah. But, you know, this is what we have got to do in order to change the situation. Absolutely. And again, to continue to go back to that Matthew 5 light illustration, it was not without purpose and intent that when God had, you know, had when Jesus was speaking those words by authority as deity to be lights, he also said to be salt. And that preserving salt is just one of the principles that comes behind that because he said in that text, if a salt has lost its savor, it is henceforth to be cast out and trodden on the foot of men. Well, we feel like we're being trodden on the foot of men now. You know, men need a, need a hump in the road. Men need something to wake them up. We do as well. But the world needs something to wake them up and to call attention. Yes, we have to be those examples. And, and we better be praying that we can. And, you know, it, it's not a first place thing because if we don't pray for it, we might not live that life. That's exactly right. And if y'all not hearing that, uh, 
She's connecting the fact, which is true, that we've got to pray to be this. We've got to continue to pray that we can have the strength and the wisdom and to be able to do this, do this to be this light. Because ultimately, if we do, the strength to do so is going to come from God. So the next verse here, finally, verse 16, in light of that, and if you'll look, and I'll, I say this regularly, but if you'll look, punctuation added by men, but helpful, right there at the end of at least my copy of Scripture in English, printing you have a semicolon and that we should live without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation that she should shine as lights in the world next phrase here holding forth the word of life that i may rejoice in the day of christ that i may have that i have not i should say run in vain neither labored in vain. So what is Paul calling for them to do now? Well, as their lights, and this is a part of how lights are to work, he said, you got to hold that light forth. Now there's two phrases here, or there's one phrase. There are two ways to translate this phrase. If you were to ask me which one that I'm about to mention is right, I'd say yes, both are. <laughs> They're both right. This could either mean, and could easily be translated as it is King James speak, holding forth the Word of God, but it also must mean hold fast the Word of God. You see, the thing is, unless I hold fast to the Word of God, I can't hold forth. That, that's when I got to digging into some of this language. That was, a, that was a kind of, you know, I started making little notes and marking stuff, and I started having to review because sometimes, and this could go back to the prayer that you know, was just referenced, we need to be praying for this. Many times, maybe, maybe the majority of times, when we say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a light to the world. You know, I'm being a good example, and I, I walk right and talk right and eat right. and Am I right? Not, not in every case, but you know, we look at the world. I've, I certainly do this and have done it. You look at the world and say, well, look at those, look at the way they live. Look at, the, look at how, you know, sorry they are and what they, the things they're involved in. It's shocking to see that. It is, it is. But what examples have they seen? And that doesn't give them an out. You stand in judgment. We all stand in judgment, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and we give an answer for ourselves, what we've done, whether it be good or whether they be evil or bad. But that's going to be based on not the judgment won't be based on, but the way they live right now could be based in some situations just on the fact they've never seen, never seen. Uh, Jennifer works on a daily basis in her work with the Department of Human Resources and such. People, and I never thought about it until she started being involved in it, she'll go into these places and these, you know, some awful, awful things going on. And you really have to stop and say, but where did they learn it? Well, I mean, that's what their mama did, and their daddy did, and their grandma did, and their great-grandma. I mean, nobody's ever known any different in, in some parts or sections of our communities and such. That's not an out, but we have to hold fast to hold forth. I've got to give the best example I can to my family, to my friends, to my foes, so I can hold forth that word. And so I think some of what he's saying here is that we need to proclaim the word. And he tells us exactly what that is. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life. The word, word here, and I may have mentioned the 
three types of word and such, but this one is logos. This one points toward the Christ. This is the same word, W-R-D, as found in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 through 14. It is the word that was made flesh, the word that dwelt among us, as we beheld the word and his glory. And this is speaking of not just some, not just the written word, not just the spoken word, but of the living word. So what are we to hold forth then? You could interpret this, hold forth Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus in order to hold forth toward the world, Jesus. Matter of fact, what he says here is really just, again, God is impressive. I don't know if you've recognized, I know you have, but as we continue to study his Bible students, he becomes more impressive, to me at least. He says, holding forth fast the word, the logos of that next word, life, zoe. John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I am come that you might have, what's the next word? Fill in that blank. Life. Might have it, that's life, more abundantly. That's the word zoe. Spelled out, looks like Z-O-E. And it carries with the idea of full life. That's why the translation there comes out more abundantly. Because that life's not just an average life. It's not an everyday uh, life. It's not the... It should be the normal life, but it's not necessarily. We have a life or an opportunity at having a life that is more abundant. So he says right here specifically, hold forth the word, Jesus, who brings ultimate life. Now what is interesting about the life that Christ brought? That's probably too broad for you to answer. That life is eternal. That life includes salvation. That life, you know, carries on in eternity, ultimately with heaven, ultimately in the presence of God. And so that life is more wonderful and made absolutely possible by Jesus. And Paul says as a result, if that takes place, if you can live, and we can, but if you do live blameless, harmless, without rebuke, in the midst of the crooked and perverse nation. If then you hold forth the word of the Lord, word of Jesus, the word of life, he said that, or in order that, I may rejoice in the day of Christ. So Paul said, if I do that, I'll rejoice. He goes on to say, in the day of Christ, and that I may have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul says, and we know this about the character of Paul, as a human, Was Paul a zealous individual? Yes. As a matter of fact, he, he said about himself concerning zeal, and you know, he goes on and on. He had an energy totally possible for us to have because of the source of his strength. But he had an energy about him. He had enthusiasm about him. He had an urgency about him that seems to be unparalleled. I mean, were any and all of the apostles impressive men through God's power? Yes. Matter of fact, in, in this same letter, we're far from it. But when we get over to one of those most familiar passages or texts that's going to come up in this same epistle, and you come down to Paul saying, uh, let me see. i got to lay eyes on it because I just lost it. Verse 13 of chapter 4 
I can do all things. What's what's his resource? You know that verse. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, that's taken out of context, and hopefully if we get to that, we'll put it in its context uh, a little bit better than maybe we have in the past. But within this context, which is, for me, turn the page and up the page, he says here, I'm going to rejoice, and I want to rejoice in you as well. We would put it like this, don't make me feel like I wasted my time. Now, he hasn't, and he wouldn't. And, you know, if, if, if we could live a thousand lives and but influence one soul outside of ours to be saved and find himself in heaven, would that be of some value? Yes, absolutely. Hopefully it would reach more than such, but if that were it, that'd be it. Paul says, don't make it seem as if that my run has been in vain, that my labor has been in vain. Now, when we talk about vain, we're talking about something that's empty, something that is useless. Um, Actually, this word carries an idea of foolish emptiness. We would phrase that, don't make a fool out of me. Don't make me look like a fool. Because Paul came to them, and again, this is out of this context, but he came to them, as he said in the, the... the record of him in Acts, he came to these people in good conscience as well as other texts. He came to these people preaching and teaching them in such a way that he preached the whole counsel of God. I mean, now, does that mean every verse, every word? No, they didn't even have it all recorded. He preached by inspiration in his time. He wrote these letters by such. He knew what had been revealed to him and to others and, you know, collectively. But he covered all the bases. He got around to it. And sometimes, at least in my life, it's a matter of do I even get around to it? Now, should we be, you know, befriending and influencing people and getting to know and then, you know, getting around to that moment where we have that discussion or maybe that study? Yes, yes. But you got to get around to that. And it's got to come before eternity turns. Or else, who's going to be lost? Those people, for one. But unfortunately, it may be that we should stand as being lost as well because of our lack of willingness to to get around to it. I'm convinced, and and I'm not looking at biblical context for this. I'm not ready to, to say, well, this book, chapter, and verse, although I know it's there, if you, if you read between these two covers, you'll see it as well, I believe. But there will be people who will be lost one day because the providence of God put them in our path. And I don't mean by that we were a bad influence. I just mean, you know, in God's providence and His foresight, He said, okay, just like Jesus crossing paths with a Samaritan woman, Jesus said what? I must needs go through Samaria. What do you need to go to Samaria for? Apparently, so he could meet up with this woman. You know, we, we pass people every day and, and, you know, make no, try to make no statement, no impact, no discussion comes up about, you know, about Christ, about his church, whatever. And I'm not saying that, you know, we're guilty for every moment. Every, but I'm saying that it may be that someone we've crossed paths with today maybe even had a conversation with the reason we met them was for this and, and it's gone. 
or at least that today is gone. And so it's just a reminder, maybe, of that. He said, I run in vain. It's foolish emptiness is the idea there. Now, verse 17, finally, starts a new context that is continually connected to the previous. Same has been the case for the whole books thus far. He shifts gears, but he's still going forward. Now, some people don't understand that. Uh, my kids don't understand that for sure. But he shifts gears, but he's first going forward. And if you've driven a stick shift, you know what I mean. You know, first gear goes forward, second gear, third. You may have a five, six, some trucks, I think 18 speed. You may have a lot. But each of those gears goes forward at a different pace and a different rate. And I think he's ramping up right here. I think he's really getting to the gritty of the nitty right here. And so he starts with this. And there are a few things that we'll see. He says, yea. Now, I don't want to be accused of running and laboring in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. He said, if I be offered up. Are there familiar texts to you? Happen to be one of my favorite New Testament texts. Are there any familiar texts to you where Paul mentioned being offered? The clue is one of the last letters he would write. He wrote it to an individual that he's about to talk about, Timothy. Second Timothy chapter four, the context verses six through eight, at least where these statements come about. As a matter of fact, these statements come about and are directly related to the preceding verse. Where he says in that, you know, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, I am now ready to be offered. There's that key word. The time of my departure is at hand. And then he makes three statements. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. And I've kept the faith. What's the reward for that, Paul? Verse 8. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The Lord of righteous justice given to me in that day, but not to me only, but all them that love his appearing. That's... that's Divine commentary on this. Written much later. Explained much later. But he says here, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to have labored in vain. Because if I be offered, he thought in prison there was always a potential he could die. And he would be offered. He would be sacrificed before the throne of men for the lives that men live. Not, not to replace their lives, but to satisfy them. Strange as it is, who is ruling the world? So we have supposed through tracking history verse up against biblical, which is really history within itself. Who was ruling and reigning at the time of this writing? The Caesars. Particularly, we believe Nero. Some of the worst. Part of a list of very, very worldly, we would say evil people. And he's sitting here potentially could lose his life at any moment. He said, don't make, don't make it out to me. I'll run in vain. I'll believe it in vain. If I be offered, if I be offered, he wants it to be upon the sacrifice and service and faith and joy and rejoice. We'll pick up there next week, uh, hopefully, and Lord willing. Appreciate your attention, your comment, as always.